Christian Church. Uh, many of you know me. My name's Ben. I'm the senior pastor here at Prairie View. Normally, I do not bring my phone up to the pulpit with me. But the reason I brought it up with me this week is that my wife, Olivia, is 38 and a half weeks pregnant. Uh, and she is currently at home, not feeling super great, uh, not convinced it's related to going into labor, uh, but I still want to pay close attention to my phone. So that's why it's up here. If you see me run off the stage, you'll know why. Uh, in the event that I do need to run off the stage, the good news is that we have a backup plan. Uh, Jonathan Fenimore has agreed to come up and do special music. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not Jonathan. It's, it's Patrick Britting. It's not Patrick Britting, but we do have a backup plan just in case I need to go. So last week, we introduced the book of Exodus here at Prairie View. And the story begins with a course of events that can only be attributed to God's sovereignty. The Israelites, also known as the Hebrews in the book of Exodus, found themselves in captivity in Egypt. The Pharaoh who came to power after Joseph the one who kind of led the Hebrews there initially, well, that new Pharaoh treated the Hebrews terribly. To limit their population growth and keep them in a state of subjection, Pharaoh enslaved them. When that didn't accomplish the goal, Hebrew midwives were commanded to kill Hebrew baby boys. And when that didn't work, all Egyptians were commanded to cast Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. But thanks to several courageous, God-fearing, compassionate women, including Pharaoh's own daughter, one Hebrew baby boy survived, and that baby's name was Moses. Moses would be raised in Pharaoh's house, but after murdering an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave, Moses fled to the land of Midian as a wanted man. He was about 40 years old when he got there. And so when he settled down, he got married. He had a couple kids. Life goes on. Perhaps in Moses' mind, Egypt was a thing of the past. And you can assume that he may have never intended to return. But God, on the other hand, hadn't forgotten about Israel. He remembered his promises to them from the book of Genesis. He heard their groaning, he saw their suffering, and he knew that something had to be done. So God, what's the plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And who will you do it through? Well, God is going to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. He's going to do it with a mighty hand. And as we see in chapters 3 and 4, He's going to do it specifically through Moses. So today we'll read the first interaction between God and Moses when God calls Moses into his service. And we'll learn a little bit about God in these chapters. We'll learn quite a bit about Moses. But then along the way, we're also going to learn something that is good news for all of us. So open up to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read from your word. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning. Thank you for guests. Thank you for familiar faces. Thank you for 
the people who have been coming here week in and week out for months or for years or even for decades. Thank you for calling us all together into this place on this morning. And so, Father, I pray that our worship to you this morning would bring you glory. I pray that our time together would be beneficial and upbuilding for us. I pray that we would talk about you, learn about you, sing to you, pray to you in a way that honors you. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, rose, ascended, and will return. And Father, we simply praise you. Again, we ask this all in Christ's name. We give you all the glory. Thank you for our time together. Amen. Well, starting in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So one day Moses is out tending his flock, presumably just another Tuesday in Midian. By this time around, Moses is almost 80 years old. But then out of nowhere, God calls Moses' name. Moses sees a burning bush that isn't consumed. A great sight that can only be described as miraculous. That's the start of Moses' first conversation with the God he presumably had heard much about in the past. But then God quickly establishes the ground rules of this conversation. Moses is to come no closer. He's to remove his sandals. Even though God speaks to Moses personally, almost casually, there is still a kind of distance between God and Moses. That's because God is holy and Moses is not. So God introduces himself as the God of Moses' fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses responds appropriately. He responds with obedience, humility, awe, and fear. Picking up in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, 
The cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God tells Moses the plan. He informs him of the calling that he's been given. God's heard the Israelites' cries. He knows their sufferings, even though Moses may have left them in the rearview mirror. And God will soon lead them out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to the promised land of Canaan. And of all people, Moses, the Hebrew who never should have made it past three months old, the one who once killed an Egyptian and fled the country in fear, the one who spent the past 40 years shepherding sheep and is in no way qualified to stand toe-to-toe with the single most powerful king in the world. Well, of all people, Moses is God's chosen man. He's going to go back to Egypt. He's going to confront Pharaoh. And he will lead the nation of Israel to the promised land. You know, Moses is arguably the most towering figure of the Old Testament. He ranks right up there with people like Abraham and David. If you know your Bible well, you might say that Moses is a legend. Some might even say Moses is a hero of the faith. So knowing that, how do you think he would respond to this calling? I mean, surely he would be an example of unshakable confidence in God, unquestioning obedience, and inspiring faith, right? I mean, if he didn't respond that way, then he wouldn't go down in history as a hero. Well, don't be so sure about how Moses might respond. We see it start in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. 
And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go out empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, Moses has some questions about this plan and understandably so. Question number one, verse 11. God, who am I? Who am I? In other words, God, of all the people you could have called for this, why me? Who am I? You know, on his face, that's a fair question. And really, it's a good response. It shows a level of humility within Moses. Who am I? But God doesn't really answer Moses' question. It seems that all that really matters is that God will be with him. Moses' pedigree, Moses' resume is not really a concern for God. All Moses really needs is God's presence. And then question two, verse 13. What is your name? When the Israelites ask me who you are, when they want to know who sent me, what do I tell them? Again, it's a fair question. You can't blame Moses for wanting a little more information about the God he's speaking to before he risks his neck in Egypt. But once again, God answers and doesn't answer at the same time. He simply says, I am who I am. In a sense, they already know who this God is. They already know that he is the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one they've heard so much about is going to save them. So God's introduced himself to Moses, and Moses' questions have been answered. They've been reasonable questions. On top of that, God has gone into great detail of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. He's told Moses exactly what to say to the elders of Israel and exactly how they will respond. He's told Moses exactly what to say to Pharaoh and exactly how he will respond. He tells Moses exactly what he will do to overcome Pharaoh's disobedience. And he tells Pharaoh, Moses rather, exactly how the story will end. God's covered all the bases. There's nothing left to be said at this point. Now Moses just needs to do it. And surely he will, right? Because again, if he didn't, then he wouldn't be this hero of the faith. Well, that's not what he does. He doesn't just do it. Instead of trusting and obeying God, Moses keeps talking. And with every word that leaves Moses' lips, his doubt, his fear, his downright rejection of God's calling for him are more and more Exposed. The longer Moses talks, the less he sounds like a hero. 
In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses insists that the Israelites won't believe him, even though God literally just told him that the Israelites will believe him. Perhaps some of Moses' concern goes back to his less than illustrious departure from Egypt. I mean, the last time Moses talked to a fellow Israelite, they mocked him for killing that Egyptian. But once again, God has an answer for Moses. He'll give Moses signs and wonders even greater than the burning bush. A staff that transforms into a snake and back into a staff again on command. Moses will be able to stick his hand in his cloak, pull it out and have leprosy. Stick his hand back in, pull it out, and not have leprosy. Moses will be able to take water out of the Nile River and change it into blood. You can picture God saying, Moses, is that good enough for you? You think the Israelites will believe you now? You think they'll take you seriously? I've given you some pretty obvious signs. God has an answer for Moses' doubts. But then in verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses informs God that he's not a gifted speaker. He's slow of speech, slow of tongue. Some wonder if Moses may have stuttered. Sorry, God, that was a miscalculation on your part. You're going to need a great public speaker to confront Pharaoh, so I guess you better go find someone else. Bad choice, God. Shouldn't have picked me. But yet again, God has an answer. He gently reminds Moses. Moses? Buddy? You may have forgotten that old story about Adam and Eve, but I made man's mouth. I made your mouth. Do you really think I can't overcome a little speech impediment? Because I can And just for good measure, a few verses later, God promises that Moses' brother Aaron, a much better speaker than him, will go with Moses. So it seems that every single time Moses tries to wiggle his way out of this calling, God has an answer. God has a response. And so in chapter 4, verse 13, Moses finally comes out with what's really on his mind. He says, Oh, my Lord, Please send someone else. Just send somebody else. Moses' hesitance wasn't born just out of humility, though there may have been some of that. It didn't just come from doubt. It didn't just come from fear, though there were certainly those things as well. Moses' hesitance to obey God was also born out of good, old-fashioned sin. He simply didn't want to do what God was telling him to do. And so for the first time in their conversation, God's anger is kindled against Moses. Nevertheless, despite Moses' lack of faith, despite his hem-hawing around, and even a request that God go away and bother someone else with this task, God hands Moses the staff, pats him on the head, And sends him on his way. Again, Moses might not be the hero that we usually picture. But that doesn't change the fact that he is still God's chosen man. So in the rest of chapter 4, Moses slowly, maybe even begrudgingly, 
makes his way towards Egypt. He informs his father-in-law that he's leaving. He takes his family with him, at least for now, and he starts heading west. And on his way, God gives Moses a more detailed look at exactly how this will all shake out. He stresses that Moses do all the miracles God has empowered him to do in Pharaoh's sight. Pharaoh will have every opportunity to see the power of God. God tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And at first, Pharaoh will refuse to obey. Then Moses is to inform Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son. And if Pharaoh refuses to let them go, then his own firstborn son would be killed. It's a preview of two of the most perplexing and maybe even disturbing features of the entire Exodus story. One that we'll see in the weeks ahead. But like his path from Egypt to Midian in chapters 1 and 2, Moses' path back to Egypt from Midian isn't a straight line. In chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, God almost puts Moses to death because he hasn't circumcised his son. Moses' wife Zipporah intercedes and saves Moses' life. Now, interpreters aren't sure why this is included in the story. What's going on here? What does it mean? How does it relate to everything else? We don't know for sure. But maybe it occurs because God knew that the Israelites would never accept a leader whose son wasn't circumcised. Maybe it's there to remind us that the God of Exodus is the same God of Genesis, one who takes the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament with deathly seriousness. Perhaps it tells us that even though God was exceedingly patient with Moses throughout their conversation, he is also not to be trifled with. And perhaps it shows us that even though God ultimately didn't, won't, wouldn't go back on his word to use Moses to free Israel, Moses is, in a sense, replaceable. We don't know for sure. But chapter 4 ends the way with a story progressing how God said it would. Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron, and they arrive in Egypt. Aaron speaks, Moses performs the signs, and the Israelites believe. So now all that's left is the confrontation with Pharaoh. And we'll start to see that in the weeks ahead. Now, with all that being said, other than having more familiarity with the biblical story, what do we learn from Exodus 3 and 4? Well, number one, we learn about some of the many attributes of God. Just to name a few from the verses that we read today. We see that God is the gracious initiator. He called Moses when Moses wasn't looking for him. Called him out of the blue. In the same way, he sent Jesus to live, die, and rise. He pours out the Holy Spirit in order that we might believe in and love Christ. God graciously initiates relationships with sinful mankind in order that we might return to fellowship with him. Fellowship that has been broken and marred by sin. We also learn that God is holy. At its most basic level, the word holy means different. We're set apart. So even though God is very personal, 
willing to graciously initiate this conversation with Moses, willing to speak to him like a friend speaking to a friend. That doesn't change the fact that God is still holy. There is still a sort of distance between the two. Moses can't come any closer. He has to take off his sandals. He's scared to look at God. There is a distance between every sinful man and woman and God. And that is a distance that is only bridged by God's grace. And we believe God's grace is most clearly and emphatically seen in the cross of Christ. The ultimate solution to the distance between sinful men and a holy God. As we saw last week, we see today that God is faithful to his promises. He's sovereign over history. Not even Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world, will be able to thwart God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Satan could not thwart God's plans when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Neither could Judas when he betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders. Neither could the Roman soldiers when they crucified Jesus. He's faithful to his promises and he's sovereign over history. We see that God is generous to his people. When the Israelites leave Egypt, they will have everything they need and then some. When they enter the promised land, they will inherit cities they didn't build, stocked houses they didn't fill, wells they didn't dig, and gardens they didn't plant. God is generous to them, and he's generous to us. And he's given us far more than gold, silver, clothes, land. He's given us a righteousness we lack by faith in the broken body and shed blood of his perfectly righteous son, that we might be in eternal fellowship with him. He's generous. God is patient. God knew what Moses was doing when he beat around the burning bush, when he dragged his feet, when he came up with every excuse in the book to try and get out of obeying God's call. And yet God was exceedingly patient with Moses. He reassured him. He provided for him. He answered his questions. And he confronted his doubts. And finally, God is a jealous judge. God loves the Israelites as his firstborn children. And when Pharaoh tried to withhold God's children from him, God's judgment would be swift. And because of what Christ has done for us, God has that same jealous love for you and for me. So we learn a great deal about God in these chapters. But we also learn a great deal about Moses. I mean, let's be honest. Moses is not exactly the confident, bold, courageous example of faith and obedience that we may have expected based on his reputation. In Exodus 3 and 4, Moses is hesitant, fearful, doubtful, and resistant to God. But you know, in a sense, that's actually okay. Because when you have a God as great as the one that we see in Exodus, Moses doesn't need to be a hero. It isn't Moses' mighty hand that will save Israel. He's simply a tool in God's mighty hand. Moses' inadequacy 
his insecurity, and even his sin could not undermine or frustrate the salvation God intended for his people. Because Moses isn't the hero of the story. That's because he doesn't have to be. And in the same way, you don't have to be the hero of your story. I don't have to be the hero of my story. God is the hero of Moses' story, and God is the hero of your story. Moses didn't have to save anybody. He couldn't save himself. And you don't have to save anybody either. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to be the hero. Now, can you relate to Moses? I'd be willing to bet that some of us can. We can sympathize with him. Perhaps we, too, are often more fearful than faithful. Perhaps we're more hesitant in the face of opposition than we are bold. Perhaps you, too, wrestle with a lack of faith at times rather than trusting God at his word from the get-go. Perhaps you doubt that God could possibly use someone as clay-footed as you for anything glorifying to him. And perhaps sometimes you too, if you're really being honest, would rather God call someone else to a form of obedience that actually requires risk, that might actually cost you something. In other words, you might not feel like a hero, and you're not. But the good news is you don't have to be. Because God has provided the hero for you. God is the hero. Moses didn't save the Israelites by his faith, by his obedience, by his courage, by his abilities, by his power, by his speaking. God saved Moses and the Israelites by his mighty hand. And likewise, you can't. You won't. You didn't save yourself or anybody else. Christ has saved you by his broken body and shed blood. Yes, you are called to trust and obey. That's true. But leave the saving to God. He's the hero. Not Moses, not you, not me. Trust him, obey him, and thank him. Glorify him for saving the Israelites through the bumbling and stumbling Moses. And glorify him by saving us through the perfectly righteous Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that, again, isn't just a story. It's not just a fascinating tale. It's not just some parable or allegory, but we believe this really happened. We believe that you really did save your people with a mighty hand. We believe that you really did call Moses. And we believe that Moses really did bumble and stumble his way through much of this. But again, Lord, that's reassuring to us in a way. That in the same way that Moses didn't have to be the hero of the Exodus, we don't have to be the heroes of our salvation. You provided Christ for that. And Father, we are grateful. So help us look to Christ as the hero of our story, the hero who 
bridges the gap between sinful people like us and you and all your majesty and holiness. Father, thank you that you are the gracious initiator, that you sent Christ in order that we might be restored into fellowship with you. Father, I pray that we would trust and obey, knowing that you are the hero, knowing that you work out all things for good for those who love you. Father, I pray that we would be examples of faith and courage and boldness, the way Moses wasn't always, the way we aren't always. But I pray that we would grow in our trust, grow in our obedience, knowing that you are the hero, that you've provided everything we need through your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, we worship you, we honor you, and we thank you. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.